Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie. Welcome to the Irish History Show. My name is Cahill Brennan, and as always, I'm joined by my co-presenter, John Dorney, from the Irish Story website. Radio turns 100 years young this year. For radio archiving solutions from people who are passionate about radio, visit radio.ie. You can follow us on Twitter, at Irish History Pod, or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. If you get a chance, please rate and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, or whichever podcast platform you get your podcasts on. It's always great to get feedback from the listeners, and by rating and reviewing the show, it really does help us. On this episode of the show, we are very pleased to be joined by Dr. Brian Hanley. Brian lectures in 20th century Irish history in Trinity College, Dublin, and has written several books, including The IRA, 1926-36. to He is co-author of The Lost Revolution, and Boiling Volcano, The Impact of the Troubles on the Republic of Ireland, 1968 to 1979. We're also very pleased to have Dr. Laura McAtackney with us today. Laura is an Associate Professor in the Department of Archaeology and Heritage Studies at Aarhus University in Denmark. In her work, she explores the historical and contemporary archaeologies of institutions and colonialism of post-conflict Northern Ireland. Some of her previous work includes Walling In and Walling Out, An Archaeology of the Troubles, The Dark Heritage of Longkesh, May's Prison, and KilmainumJailGraffiti.com, which explores female experiences of imprisonment during the Irish Civil War. You're both very welcome to the show. Now, why do you think the 2020 centenaries are proving so much more contentious than 2016? And I'll go to Laura first, please. I think there's a number of reasons for this, and uh, it's not simply because we're in a more difficult period of commemoration, which of course we are. So I think a lot of people commented in uh, 2016 that although we got through the Easter Rising and the Battle of the Somme relatively unscathed, they were actually relatively simple in comparison to what the War of Independence and Civil War were going to be. So the past is becoming more murky, it's becoming more morally questionable, the actions of different people, and that makes it more difficult to remember. But we're also in a very different contemporary, and I think this is one of the things we often forget when we talk about uh, commemoration, that it's not the same as what happened in the past. What we remember and how we remember it is always connected to the present. And so, of course, 2016 was also the year of Brexit, and as we moved increasingly towards this you know, potentially really difficult Brexit, which has been mishandled at every turn. And um, I think this has really reawakened in a lot of Irish people just how difficult the relationship with Britain still remains in some ways. Whenever the Good Friday Agreement was passed and there was a more open border approach, people were able to have multiple identities and you could be British and Irish or either, and it didn't matter, then that was fine. But we've now reached a period where those borders have become active again. And that has an impact on how we remember the creation of those borders to start with. 
So this has made it doubly more difficult. It's not just what happened in the past, but also how we're moving through the present. Yeah, I mean, I think Laura's absolutely correct. I mean, I got the sense this year that a lot of people had had sleptwalked into 2020 in terms of the commemorations and the centenaries. There'd been a, a feeling among academics, at least, and some commentators um, that everything had gone really well, that they'd got over 2016. And I mean, I think there's a political view that, you know, 2016 was going to be very difficult. And there were a lot of people who said to me, oh, we're entering dangerous territory now. And their belief really was, and it's quite a crude belief in some ways, that if you commemorate the Easter Rising, it necessarily is going to reinvigorate republicanism. And they believe that because you still have a lot of people who think, particularly, again, certain commentators and so on, that 1966, the 50th anniversary in the Republic played some role in kicking off the conflict in the North three years later. Now, the fact was the big celebrations were in the South. They weren't in the North. The commemorations in the North were completely different. But nevertheless, people think there is this organic link between the two. And you had a lot of people, you know, I was arguing with people saying, why, why should 2016 have that impact? But people did think it would. And if you compare it to, say, 2013, when we had commemorations of the lockout, nobody thought commemorating the 1913 lockout was going to lead to loads of unofficial strikes or to a massive growth in trade union membership, for example. There just wasn't that sense of foreboding, to use that word, about it. But 2016 was supposed to be different. And of course, 2016 passed off, you know, relatively well in inverted commas in commemorative terms, as Laura said. So this year, I think there was a real shock when suddenly they realised, actually, no, hold on. You're proposing commemorating the RIC, but the RIC included the Black and Tans and the Auxiliaries. And there were people like the Harp Society, for example, and Charlie Flanagan, the minister, you know, who were using terms about the death of policemen being murdered. Uh, this was just an ordinary police force and so on, which suggests that they had a political motivation for commemoration. I think in other cases, including other government ministers, they literally just slept, walked into it. They didn't give it any thought at all. And historians contradicted themselves then and how they responded to it, with some of them saying, oh, it's not about the black and tans, when it always kind of had to be. And they were surprised, I think, by the, the very angry response, which again, as Laura says, is linked to things that have happened since 2016 in both the relationship between Britain and Ireland and probably global politics as well. So, I mean, I think the idea that we could have a contentious free decade of commemorations was always pretty unlikely and, and is wrong in some ways because you know this is a contentious subject there are people who for example Stephen Collins in the Irish Times who writes a lot about commemoration and he criticizes people for not learning about the past but he's you know learned nothing since he first read about John Redmond because the view he has of John Redmond doesn't stand up to any historical examination and yet he writes about it an awful lot and he's one of the people who talks about you know this great fear of commemoration leading to this this rise in republican feeling and i think it's a lot more complicated than that and it doesn't do a great service to people's you know abilities to to take on board the complexities of history which i think they have once it's presented to them in a fair handed way We'll get on to, I think, the different meanings that people put on the events of 1916 and 1920. But Laura and Brian, both of you mentioned, you know, the contemporary context, which is all important for commemoration. And the other one is the rise of Sinn Féin as the major political party in, in the south of Ireland. And do you think that the commemoration is causing a kind of polarisation in politics or it's like the polarisation in politics is causing polarisation of memory in a way? It's more complicated than one just causing the other. I think there's a, a kind of synergy between the two. 
But I don't think that the rise in Sinn Féin is really related to anybody thinking that they're in some ways the you know, kind of natural descendants of the IRA from the 1920s or before. Like, I really think that that's uh, a lot of kind of gaslighting from some politicians because it's clear that the social inequalities in Ireland are really causing a lot of problems. It's very obvious that the the two main parties have kind of become more complacent and, you know, just really assumed that they were naturally going to always fight out the elections between the two of them. And there wasn't really going to be any major disruption to that. And so I think that, you know, Sinn Féin doing so well in the last elections is really, you can see by the reaction that how different the reaction has been, particularly their participation in the decade of commemorations has really risen a lot in the media, but also through political rhetoric. Um, in 2016, of course, Sinn Féin had an alternative commemoration, which wasn't the same as the state one. And they, you know, used the different date as well. And it was really, you know, kind of seen as a bit tawdry and marginalised and wasn't really taken that seriously. There was a couple of snipes, but not much. But you really see the difference now between any um, comment made by Sinn Féin is often dragged back to this dispute about how much they reflect a different type of IRA or an innovation or a new one that was completely different from the past. And like, frankly, I think that really is because of their electoral success. Their electoral success wasn't caused by that connection. Yeah, I mean, I think the electoral success of Sinn Féin is more to do with the last recession and with the fundamental kind of realignment in Irish politics that was beginning to happen anyway then it has to do with commemorating things that happened 100 years ago. But because of Sinn Féin's particular history, there is always going to be a battle for ownership of the title of Republican or the title of who really belongs to this tradition. And I suppose that the great buzzword of the, of the decade of centenaries was shared history. And I wonder how many newspaper articles they've been in Britain this week about the burning of Cork. I mean, the whole point is that a lot of the government official commemorations in Ireland have, have emphasised this shared history and involvement in the First World War and so on. And they've done it without any mention really of imperialism or of power or of why Irish men and Irish women were taking part in this global conflict. Ironically, really only Michael Lee Higgins in some of his speeches has talked about imperial triumphalism and about imperialism and so on. And that again was something that couldn't have been avoided. It was always going to come to the surface at some point. And it has done now really perhaps not um, deliberately, but it is now part of the discussion. And I think that's important. But I mean, Sinn Féin are, are big enough to speak for themselves. And I think they themselves have to own their own mistakes too. So unfortunately, a great deal of this conflict is being fought out online. And I wonder, do any veterans of the IRA from the 1970s and 1980s wonder where all these adherents of the armed struggle were then? Because there are a lot of people who are very certain they would have definitely supported the IRA in the 1970s and 1980s, who I'm not sure really uh, were either around or would have done. And I think the, the problem with Twitter, of course, is that it's often the equivalent of a playground or a pub argument. Now, in a pub argument, you'll get punched and you won't on Twitter. So people move very quickly into territory which doesn't really serve a discussion of these topics on all sides. And I think it, it's not been helpful to try and tease out a lot of these points. But certainly, I think the argument now about the old IRA versus the new and so on, it's not a, a new argument, but it's got a new edge now. And, you know, you've got to, to try and tease that out because it's not it's not a simple argument.
Yeah, I would just add that I actually think that's a really good point. But, you know, this idea of what the old IRA was and when that becomes the new IRA, like, I think that really, it also lacks a spatiality. Like, we don't really have in that discussion how Northern Ireland, as an entity that was created as part of the War of Independence and Civil War, is not the same thing as what was happening across all of Ireland during that period. So, you know, you have a a statelet which has an inbuilt majority, which is unionist. And so nationalist experience is up there and particularly the IRA as it acted after the late 60s and 70s is just a completely different context. So I think there's a lot of circular arguments about what the IRA did in the 1920s against what they did in the 1970s and if they're you know, tie into each other, but there's just absolutely no way they could. They're not, you know, you just don't replicate history in exactly the same way. They're different contexts and different places. And so I think a lot of the arguments have become quite circular, but also just bad history. You just can't compare things like that, which are completely different. One comment I'd have on that is people are always comparing, say, what happened in Belfast or Tyrone or Armagh in the 70s with what happened in Cork in the 20s. But what the Northern conflict in the late 20th century most resembled was a northern conflict in the 20s. You know, it was different then as well. The demographics are different, I would say, no? Yeah, and like, you know, the War of Independence in Northern Ireland, you know, isn't really the War of Independence, or I should say in the north of Ireland. So, you know, for example, for 1920, which is commemorated this year, um, Lisburn Museum has put a really excellent online um, exhibition on the Swansea riots. So when an IRC um, officer was killed you know there was a huge number of riots which ended up over a number of days burning out all the catholic businesses and pushing catholics out of the town so that's just not something that really replicated because of the demographics being so different so you know the pogroms were much more associated with nationalist experiences of the north which are not don't really have a comparative with experiences in the south so i think that sometimes there's just having these discussions which you know don't really lead anywhere because they can't prove anything they're just not comparing like and like so, Brian, we had Kieran Glennon on over the summer discussing these very issues, the Belfast pogrom. I remember when I was doing history in secondary school, my idea of history, the way it was taught, was that the War of Independence and the Civil War were 26 county affairs, even though during the War of Independence, you didn't have partition at that stage. What are your feelings on that? Yeah, well, I, I suppose, I mean, I think that one of the things we've we've learned about that period is that there were very distinct regional differences to how the war was fought. And parts of Ulster are exceptional in that, particularly Belfast, where Catholics bear the brunt of violence and where civilians bear the brunt of violence, which isn't always necessarily the case elsewhere. But I think it's important to say that the IRA did see it as an all-Ireland struggle. And the IRA in Belfast in 1920 did initially, and this is important too, because this is a circular argument in some ways, the IRA in Belfast in 1920 weren't very keen initially to be a communal defence force. I mean, they thought their job was to do the same kind of operations and carry on the same type of struggle as the IRA in the rest of Ireland. But by the summer of 1920, effectively, they're being forced into a, a defensive position. And the nature of the conflict there is very, very different, as Kieran Glenn and other people have, have outlined. But I think they did think it was an all-Ireland struggle. And it does lead to all these kinds of contradictions, whereby a lot of the IRA and the North initially support the treaty. A significant number of IRA volunteers joined the Free State Army. This seems completely counterintuitive if we think in terms of the treaty as the great betrayal of the North and so on. And I noticed Declan Kearney of Sinn Féin had, had an article in, on Fublocked Online the other day about these history wars. And he was saying these history wars are unhelpful. And 
maybe we can come back to what he was saying because I think it was slightly contradictory, but he, he emphasized very much partition, partition, partition. Now, John has written on the civil war and, and we've all looked at it in some parts of Ireland in 1922 when the IRA is splitting, it's not partition they're talking about, you know, and, and I'm not quite sure that the IRA in Kerry is completely driven by this feeling, you know, that we've got to stop partition, although that's part of it. So this is, is it's, it's a very messy period and, and no side really can claim without problems the mantle of who was doing who, and we can come back to what some of the, the Belfast IRA ended up doing in the Civil War, or what some of the Dublin IRA ended up doing in the Civil War if we want. But I think we do need to have these discussions and have them in a way in which as many people as possible can take part in them without fear of being labelled one thing or the other. Because I think it does have a chilling effect, and, and I'm not a, you know, inverted commas, snowflake shrink and violet but I would at times not be keen to get into discussions about these things particularly online because of the ferocity of the responses and I think we do have to step back and say look you wouldn't talk like this if you met a neighbor who disagreed with you you know so let's try and, and dial it back a bit when we discuss this this is important this is our history people differed 100 years ago they differ now but we don't actually have to kill each other about this yeah, no, I totally agree. So I think one of the issues is as well as the kind of tone policing around what you're allowed to study in history, like certain subjects are considered unhelpful, as we've already discussed around this idea that it that commemoration necessarily creates a kind of sympathy towards one side or the other. I think that's one of the issues I've had since 2016 onwards is that some of the commemorations have taken a tone of being celebrations rather than, you know, really engaging with the complexities of the issue. Personally, I think a lot of the histories have been really great that have came out. We found a lot more about women's roles. We found a lot more, more marginal stories coming out. And I think that's really important that a period of commemoration is a period when there's a heightened public interest. And it means that narratives can change because enough people are writing, enough people are researching, enough people are engaging in the conversation. But they need to be you know, respectful of the fact that you know, the past is really difficult to get a complete handle and there's really no one perspective on what happened and what led from one thing to another. This is even more so when we're talking about the Troubles because essentially then we're talking about a period of lived memory. So the sources are just so much more, there's so much more personal opinion and oral histories attached to that rather than just trying to piece together um, from various types of documentation and um, biographies and things like that. I think in Ireland, we do have a really healthy exchange about history but the social media aspects is really polarizing it and it's that anonymous ability of people to be able to just you know say the most problematic things hidden behind you know some kind of avatar and fake name makes it even more contentious and also I think the media tie into that a lot more like they report a lot more from what's happening on social media so it can drive those divisions further out into you know wider public discourse which you know as Brian said is really problematic. I mean, some of it is driven by by relative powerlessness, and I'm not excusing it in that, you know, Stephen Collins has a weekly column mm -hmm. in the Irish Times to annoy me, uh, and I don't have one to reply. Government ministers have a media platform where they can say things every day and be on RTE, and most people don't. So I think some of it is people get angry and they post things, but it does very quickly become very nasty and I think doesn't serve a greater understanding. At the same time, I think that there's no doubt that this, this isn't just a question of inverted commas, shinner bots. 
This is all sides using the media to try and dominate a conversation. But I suppose, I mean, John wants to get in, but but maybe we could also talk about maybe what's a more controversial question, because I think the, the support for the IRA in the modern period is being underplayed by critics of Republicans. I think it's a much more complex story. And I think the whole Warren Point question is, is a much more complex story than maybe the, the media certainly have been prepared to admit. First, I've kind of got a comment. You know this annoying thing people do where they do a comment instead of a question. <laughs> but, uh, but no, uh, my first comment is, though, I think that there's an element of kind of a fantasy world around social media, like where, you know, this appearance of great polarization and anger. But like, if people calm down a little bit, I mean, they might remember that Sinn Féin, for example, has totally forsworn political violence and is absolutely critical of anyone who uses political violence today. And this never gets mentioned, you know, in, in debates. So I think there's this kind of fantasy world where people imagine, you know, free staters, blue shirts, terrorists and stuff. And the reality in the real world is not like that. Well, the reality in the real world, of course, is that ordinary people, if that's not a patronising term, are capable of holding all kinds of contradictory ideas and of changing their minds. And actually, during the 1970s and 1980s, people did change their minds about the armed struggle and about matters related to the conflict in the North an awful lot, because things happen that force you to change your mind or that affect you personally. And an argument about that 30, 40 years on often ignores all these contexts. And context is important, John, as you say. I mean, Sinn Féin today do condemn political violence. And I do think that there is a bit of a problem there at times in that their argument would be, of course, that the context no longer exists for Republicans to kill policemen, for example. So if the new IRA do carry out an attack, Sinn Féin will say, it's a completely different world now. You have no right to do this. And then what the new IRA will say, well, in the 1980s, when Sinn Féin were asked about political violence, they would have answered, the context doesn't really matter. As long as Britain remains in Ireland, people have a right to fight them. And that's what Gerry Adams said, for example. That's what Danny Morrison said. He said, it's nothing to do with elections, nothing to do with the amount of votes we get. It's about the British presence. And as long as Britain is present in Ireland, people have a right to fight them. Now, that's the context of the 1980s. But unfortunately, unless you're, you know, going to disown that context entirely, which Sinn Féin can't do. Sinn Féin can't say the provisional IRA was wrong at that time. So therefore, this problem is always going to exist, I think. And it exists for Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael when they try to honour the good old IRA as well. Yeah, like I think one of the things I've really noticed is, you know, someone who comes from the North and grew up during the Troubles, it's just how little sometimes people in the South really know about the Troubles. There was a lot of, you know, obviously apart from the border counties, which I think have a very different relationship. But outside of people who actually spent time doing research on this, there is a very partial view of what the Troubles was. And it's definitely becoming more partial over time. Like a lot of the stuff I see on social media on both sides is, you know, things that deny how awful things were on all sides. But particularly, the, you know, the Troubles was a 30-year conflict. It obviously had different types of ebbs and flows. It had, you know, different strategies. There was different people involved. Like loyalist paramilitaries played a huge role. So did both states, you know, more so probably, obviously, the British state. But there is increasing discussions about the role of the Irish state as well. You know, it's a very difficult conflict and it's a very difficult one to write about and think about and engage with and try to compare what happened 100 years ago because it is in living memory. People are still alive who were impacted by it, who lived through it. 
like I know personally living in Belfast and I grew up in different parts of Belfast. I grew up initially in West Belfast where my family are from. And my first memory is Bobby Sands funeral when I was, you know, three or four years old. I have very distinct memories of that funeral cortege coming down the bottom of our street. Um, but I also grew up in South Belfast and in North Belfast. And my my mum's family come from East Belfast, where there's now a peace wall, where their family were burnt out. So people have really strong and long memories of being impacted by conflict. And I know from my own family, there was a lot of wavering of support for various aspects. Like people didn't like the idea of the IRA bombing randomly in shops and killing people but they also were aware that they felt that there was a some degree of protection because you know there was targeting of Catholic civilians by loyalist paramilitaries and there was an idea that the British forces weren't protecting anybody so it's just it's a very complex thing and I have very strong memories of just seeing the ebbs and flows of that as different events happened and particularly moving towards peace processes is there was just such a fatigue by violence that people just wanted things to end and I think there is also a lack of recognition of the big shifts that um, Sinn Féin and IRA had to have at that period to bring about a peace process that had been faltering through for a number of years by that stage so you know it is a complex period and particularly one when you know you live through it and you're not I like to think not even that old so there's people who have far stronger memories than I do of the 70s which were in lots of ways much worse. Well Laura you just mentioned there about different levels of support within the nationalist community for different types of actions that the provisional IRA undertook. Now the big controversy all this week was about the Sinn Féin TD Brian Stanley tweeting about connections between the Kilmichael ambush, which we recently had the 100th anniversary of, and the attack on the parachute regiment in Narrow Water near Warren Point. It's very difficult to look at a lot of the coverage from the media over the past week and not think there's a heavy element of cynicism in a lot of the attacks on Sinn Féin. So were you surprised that Brian Stanley and Sinn Féin both apologised for an attack on the parachute regiment, bearing in mind the role that they have had in the conflict in the north. Like, yes and no. I think, again, there's a different perspective from the north because it's only six months ago that the Bala Murphy massacre inquest have kind of ran through and finished, like they haven't been reported on. But, um, you know, so the parachute regiment, as we know, are connected to the killings there and also the killings in Derry. So there's a very strong reaction against them. But I think the context in the south is different or maybe the parachute regiment doesn't have quite the same repelling impact on nationalists as it would with nationalists in the north. And I think, again, this Sinn Féin have always been like quite media savvy and how much they should be apologising and how they apologise for stuff without disavowing, you know, what they did in the past so I think there was just a lot of pressure particularly when also I think that um, Arlene Foster asked for an apology through the Doyle as well you know it became a number of angles we were being pushed to try and disavow a past which you know as Brian has said is problematic because they don't really want to and they can't really because they did justify the whole way through the troubles why they were involved in it but we're in a period which is almost like, you know, trying to commemorate multiple things at once, where you're trying to re-remember what the troubles were through the context of now, where a party that was connected to conflict over a very long period is trying to make itself look respectable in a way that works with 
the society in the Republic of Ireland, which is quite different to how they present in the north of Ireland? I was surprised that there was an apology in the sense that of all the things the provisional IRA did over 25 years, I wouldn't regard Warren Point as anything like the worst of them. And I'm basing that partly on an admittedly childhood memory because I was about 11 at the time and it's the first time I read on Fublock. My mother had bought it and it was on the kitchen table and the headline was IRA make Britain pay. And I think in terms of the IRA's armed struggle, killing 18 British soldiers, they weren't all paras, but most of them were, was not that unpopular at all, even in Southern Ireland. I mean, the view of people in my family and my wider family would have been that they were the ones who did Bloody Sunday, they're British soldiers. The view of the assassination of Mountbatten and his boating party on the same day would have been completely different. And I think this is one of the ironies or one of the contradictions of people's attitude to the IRA's campaign. The killing of Mountbatten, and again, there's there's a lot of respective arguments about Mountbatten, but I'm looking at it at the time, was seen as appalling. The fact that there were eight people on that boat and all of them could have been killed and two teenagers were killed and an elderly woman was seen as absolutely disgusting and a huge proportion, I think, of the population were repelled by it. Many of those people would have felt very differently about the Paris. And I think that argument could have been teased out a little more, but it's very difficult for a political party to do that when they're under, you know, there were people in Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael and Labour, I can guarantee you, who didn't give a damn in 1979 that the provost had killed Paris. And if I had a euro for every time someone said to me when I was a teenager, if they only killed British soldiers, they'd be all right. I'd be able to pay off my mortgage now, I can tell you. I mean, it's, it's attitudes to the IRA were pretty fluid. And there were times in the early 70s, certainly, to a much lesser extent, maybe around the hunger strikes, where lots of people in Southern Ireland from a cross section of the population would have at least understood what the IRA was doing. But then in between, you've got this litany of dreadful killings and atrocities. And I suppose I, another thing I would say that uh, there's nothing special about people I know, but I do know people who are involved in the IRA. And a lot of them are far more, you know, nuanced in their thinking about this and far more reflective and would tell you that there's lots of things the IRA did that they don't agree with. Then a lot of the people who take up cuddles on behalf of the IRA, you know, again, on social media, for example. So I think this was, even for people in the IRA, there are different attitudes to things the IRA did. And certainly, I don't think Warren Point, if you're going to apologise for things, there's a lot more to apologise for than, than an attack on the British Army. And this might give us an opportunity, though, to talk about this, you know, the problems of memory, I suppose, because in some media coverage, Warren Point, which was illegitimate in that frame, was contrasted with the Kilmichael ambush, which was a legitimate military encounter by this interpretation. But back in 1920, no one in the Irish Times, for example, was describing Kilmichael in those terms. They described it as a bloody massacre where the auxiliaries were killed after taking prisoners and were mutilated with axes by men who tricked them wearing British Army uniforms. So is there this thing of cleaning up the past and having one imagined past that you contrast against another past? I think Laura made the point earlier about distance and, and about north and south, but also about how long the conflict went on. I mean, I think very crudely, Kilmichael worked. Within a year, there was a settlement and the British Army ultimately left the 26 counties. Warren Point had really no appreciable difference in terms of Britain's. You know, if, if anything, it hardened 
the Thatcher government's resolve towards things like the prison crisis and the British haven't left. I mean, we have a settlement, but it hasn't led to United Ireland yet. And horrible as much as the war of independence was. And we know now, again, we look at the, the statistics. I mean, it's a lot more brutal in many ways than the Northern conflict because it takes place in, in two and a half years. But the point is that Kilmichael is a shock to the British in a way and to British public opinion that is forcing a public opinion that's already very worried about Ireland to completely reassess their attitude in Ireland. Whereas Warren Point, ultimately, you look at it and you go, well, what happens? The thing just goes on and on and on. And, you know, they don't pack up and leave because you've killed um, 18 soldiers. So I think in part, people rationalise these things in terms of the results. And the grim result is by the 1920s, most people in the South think independence is a good thing. And there's a consensus among Fianna Fáil and what becomes Fine Gael and Labour and so on, that the IRA was basically right. You can't have that consensus in the North because it's a divided society. And in the South, people just aren't sure what consensus to have about it at all, you know, because it seems that the North is only dragged into our discourse when it's being used to either attack Sinn Féin or to, you know, complicate people's memories of the good old IRA. Yeah, no, totally, I'd agree. As I've mentioned before, I do find it interesting how much these debates are dominated by historians and not including people who work in memory studies and people who work in heritage and, you know, engaging with these other issues about why things are remembered and how they're remembered. Um, And I think, you know, when we're looking at the troubles, like we are still working with living memory, we are working with having a lot more contradictions, which makes it really difficult to actually be able to pinpoint, you know, exactly what is going on and you know, who to blame and who to who to deride and who to make a hero and a villain out of. It's much easier to do that whenever you have the distance of time and then you can look at the consequences, which as Brian has said, were viewed as positive, you know, that did was a small a short, short-ish conflict in the wider uh, kind of arena of conflicts in Ireland. And it did resolve for most of the island in a way that what was intended. So, you know, having those different consequences means that the the ends can justify the means, which is just not the case whenever you look at the troubles. It's a much more complicated conflict. It's a completely different uh, demographic of a society. And it really does make us push ourselves when we think about this idea of what happens post-Brexit if there is to be an Ireland that is, you know, no longer has a border borders in the Irish Sea, does that make it move towards more of a political unity? And what does that mean in terms of how you deal with a large, you know, unionist minority on the island, majority in the state? I'm not saying that that's ever going to rectify itself soon, but there's lots of different consequences around, you know, how you deal with the North. There's this slightly disengaged, slightly othered place that is just seen as a long-term problem and in some ways an embarrassment. Why do you think some parts of the Southern establishment are so nervous about commemorating the independence struggle? You know, as we've said, these are much more messy conflicts. You know, the Easter Rising is an established, you know, kind of traditional memory event that has tied in with a a great kind of Irish tradition of victimhood as well. You know, to have so many people executed so quickly, so needlessly, and a very, you know, a lot of, you know, quite tragic stories about it that by the 50th anniversary, there was more of a kind of a a willingness and an ability to commemorate it in ways that are much more different, particularly against, you know, the Civil War, which is always Civil Wars are much more difficult to to commemorate, like anywhere. This isn't just in Ireland. 
because essentially it's very hard to, to create that kind of idea of the bad guy and the good guy, particularly when we have this long history of continued struggle afterwards. Uh, and I think you're know, looking at someone like Anne Dolan's work on the memory of the Civil War, it's interesting to consider how quickly you know, the, the memory of those previous periods were given over to anti-treaty forces really because the people who won the civil war were uncomfortable about how they won it and against the memory of the people who had died you know in quite quick succession around that so it became a difficult thing to remember and I think that still is the case I, I remember talking to someone a couple of years ago who had a very strong opinion that 100 years is too soon to do you know, to commemorate a civil war it's just too close which I found kind of amusing in some ways, but I have colleagues who work in Finland and they had a civil war in 1918 and they've went through the commemorations of it. And I find it interesting just to look at, you know, how difficult they find certain narratives and other narratives, not so much, because again, it tied into an independence movement as well. But in other ways, they had a, a lot of a, a different context because they didn't have residual areas they were still essentially fighting for. So I think that the Civil War is always going to be this kind of difficult thing to get through. But in the current context with Brexit and with electoral success of Sinn Féin, that makes it even more difficult. Yeah, I mean, I think I suppose the simple answer is the North, because until the late 1960s, there really wasn't a problem for the Southern establishment, if we want to call them that, in terms of commemorating the War of Independence. Um, there was a consensus that it was a good thing. And then there became a consensus, and again, we can say how much of this was real or how much was imagined, that too much commemoration of those events would simply give credence to the argument of the provisional IRA in the 1970s, that they were just completing unfinished business, that this was a continuous struggle since 1916 and beyond. And people, you know, in the leadership of the provisional IRA and in their publications and in their propaganda, they did say 1916 to 1972, 1916 to 1975, you know, this is the same thing. And we can argue about the context and about what went on, but there is a powerful kind of myth about 1916, as Laura said, which is that it's a fair fight. You know, the, the rebels wear uniforms, they're led by idealists and poets and playwrights, and they take up position in the centre of Dublin, and they know they're going to lose, but they're going to reinvigorate the spirit of Ireland and so on. And it's a lot more complicated than that, but it's a powerful vision. The Provisional IRA's campaign, when you examine it and compare it to the War of Independence, there are a lot of similarities. You know, there's lots of stuff goes on that's, that's very problematic for people. So I think part of the fear of commemoration is that you simply reinvigorate republicanism by talking about these things in the past. And it's difficult for the mainstream parties because even though I know that Fine Gael can often seem to be pretty far removed from this, they're the party of Richard Mulcahy and Sean McKeown and all the rest of them as well. And Fianna Fáil quite obviously have claimed the mantle of the independence movement throughout their history. And, you know, Micheál Martin has made speeches, and I presume he's been sincere, where he's just said, you know, the IRA of 1919 to 21 simply would not have done these things. Well, the more we know about the IRA of 1919 to 21, we do know that they did a lot of things that the provisional IRA did. In fact, they did more of them. I mean, one of the big, rightly one of the big, arguments that's made against the provisionals is that they disappeared people and maybe 16 people were disappeared not all by the IRA mostly by the IRA through 25 years of conflict but the, the old IRA we now know disappeared at least 100 people in a much shorter period of time more than 60 of them in Cork so 
you know, what's the Cork IRA got to answer for? I mean, this is a, this is a, this is a real question in terms of how we, we look at history. And one way to do it is to say it's all wrong. There should never have been an IRA and we were happy enough under British rule or John Redmond would have brought about peaceful self-government. I don't believe that. I think that's untrue. But at the same time, you know, I take the view that it is legitimate to examine what the IRA did in 1920 and 1921 and to look at it from a historical point of view and to hold it up. And the counter view, the Republican view, is that, well, if it was all right in 1920, it's all right in 1980. I don't think that holds true either. You've got to look at different contexts and motivations and political choices or the lack of them as well. And I think we can have that discussion. Um, people aren't fools. They're not just simply led by buzzwords. I think if people can make these arguments and have them with people, I think people have the ability to look at these issues in a, in a more nuanced way. I think, though, one of the interesting things is that the idea of the gunmen and the struggle, even for independence, was flawed, goes all the way back. I mean, if you look at the writings of P.S. O'Hegarty, for example, or Kevin O'Higgins, they very much came around to the view in the Civil War and the immediate post-Civil War period, so the very early days of the Free State, that the cult of the gunman and so on, as they called it, was a very bad thing and it was, the whole thing had been a mistake. So I think this is quite an old idea, actually, of that the constitutional way was the path not taken and stuff like that in, in sectors of Irish society into a wider context which we sometimes forget that Ireland you know doesn't just exist as an internal entity but you know we're after the first world war there is you know the crumbling of empires and the the idea that we're starting to move towards other ways you know having degrees of freedom from empire so I think there can be very quick um, rejection of violence particularly whenever you know people reach a point when they've reached their limit of violence really like I have some colleagues who believe that the civil war was, you know, not as bloody as it could have been because essentially there just, you know, there was just military fatigue, but also not enough guns and ammunition left to, for people to kill themselves at a higher rate. Really, the, it resolved itself because they ran out of military options in some ways. But I think very quickly people start to look back and start to think of other ways they could have got through, which I Again, I think hindsight can start quite quickly. It's not something that needs 20 years or 50 years or 100 years. Um, but it is a problem in trying to critique what people have been involved with. And then they start to imagine that they could have done it differently, which, like Brian, I don't really think was the case. Yeah, I mean, people are talking about the old IRA as early as 1922, I think. And I suppose... It, it is interesting that a significant number of, of 1916 veterans didn't take part in the Civil War. I mean, the neutral IRA was actually a very large organisation in 1922. A lot of people opted out even then. But I think there's also, I mean, the key point that Laura made again, which is often forgotten in our decade of commemorations, is that there is a question of power and there's a question of violence. And the biggest, most powerful proponent of violence was the British Empire. And Ireland had been, without any choice, involved in this vast global conflict in which more Irish men died than in any conflict on Irish soil, and not all Irish men uh, either in World War I. And some people think that means that we should commemorate it more because it's bigger. But I mean, I actually think that we should reject it more, that we should say, hold on, if we're going to talk about violence between 1916 and 1923, you know, those who fought in Ireland for independence were tangibly fighting for something which actually I believe a majority of, of Irish people wanted. Whereas those who fought in the First World War 
were wasted, were sent off to die for imperialism, essentially. And there's a kind of reluctance to talk about that aspect of violence. I and mean, again, I, I'll just go back to John Redmond because, you know, he, he writes in 1915 about a visit to the Irish regiments at the front. And while he's there, they allow him fire an artillery piece at the German lines. And he says, you know, I'm, I'm not an expert at this type of thing, but I can only hope my shot went home. Now, John Redmond is therefore not a man of peace. You know, he's actually possibly involved in directly killing people in 1915. And I think you've got to put that in the context of the violence that takes place in Ireland too. And then, I mean, as Laura says, our civil war isn't as bad as the Finnish civil war, you know, in terms of, of deaths. And I think a lot of people opt out of our civil war. I think large parts of the population don't take part in it at all. It's a war between two sections of the Republican movement rather than, you know, a war between the workers and the bosses or two parts of the country. So it's a horrible civil war. But I think, John, you've firstly, you've written probably the best book on the civil war in recent years, but also you've noted how a lot of the so-called civil war bitterness, it really dates from the 1930s, you know, from later political conflicts rather than anything that happened in, in 1923. So I think it's important we put it in global terms. And also then that that's important for understanding the North, I think, because I think the War of Independence did have vastly higher levels of popular support. And it also crucially had an international support base in America, among the Irish in Britain and across the empire and across the world, which is completely unlike anything the Provo's ever had. I think that the Irish were lucky in 1919 that there was this great question of self-determination, that there had been a revolution in Russia, that the world was on fire and they were seeking independence in that context. The provisional IRAs, because of partition and because of the way the state was, was set up, their war was always going to be a lot more isolated and a lot more difficult. And I do think it had popular support among some nationalists, uh, a lot of them at various stages in the north, and popular support at various stages in the south too. But it was always going to be a minority affair, which I think the Southern public could never buy because they were distant from it. And I think the mythology of the good old IRA also hindered the provost in many ways because people genuinely I mean again this wasn't a revisionist historian who said this to me this was my mother I mean she'd have sung Kevin Barry and then she'd have said that's not the same IRA as the IRA today so I think that was a real thing. Well as we worry about you know all these commemorations being just 26 county affairs and leaving out things like you know the pogroms in the north and it'll be interesting to see how the founding of Northern Ireland is commemorated and remembered one of the things is back in 2013, we had the 100th anniversary of the founding of the UVF. And should that have been looked at more throughout the whole 32 counties? If we're thinking of Irish history, and back in that period is pre-partition, trying to get an idea of all the violence in Ireland at that time, that we're looking at the UVF, other than just in the context of the 36 Ulster Division and the First World War, but also the other groups that come into existence, the reformed UVF after the First World War, the Imperial Guard. And we don't have the same collection of memoirs from that side in the way that we do with the Bureau of Military History and people leaving their memories of having been involved in those type of organisations. Would it be better if we did as a whole throughout Ireland looked at things from a unionist perspective or not from a unionist perspective, but just examined unionism's role and unionist people's role in that period? 
like yes <laughs> obviously I would think so like I find it very interesting how little there has been a perspective on the UVF and loyalist perspectives outside of the six counties because obviously it's something that I explored whenever I did my initial research on the Mays prison then I wanted to speak to loyalist prisoners as well because they were obviously one of the main groups associated with it but I think one of the problems that you have kind of pointed out is that there's a lack of documentary evidence that is easily accessible uh, to be able to get back to the early UVFs and to those organisations around 1913 and onwards through the First World War and there were different types of organisations afterwards, but also just a lack of real willingness to connect to that. I think it's hard to sometimes explain where this comes from, but there's definitely a lack of kind of obviously like a romanticization around something like the UVF like they are a conservative force and loyalist force that wants to retain a status quo connected to you know long-term plantation and colonialism essentially that's not a very romantic thing to um, study outside of you know if you come from that community you might find it particularly interesting and um, which is what I find is there's just a lack of interest really from a lot of historians that I know uh, working in the south really that they, you know, they might have a knowledge of it, but it's not something they're particularly interested in following through. Whenever I did work with um, loyalist prisoners, when I was doing my work on the Mays prison, there's also the issue of one, I really had a hard time getting access to them because they didn't want to speak to me. <laughs> I'm not sure if that was because they presumed I was from a nationalist background or I was female or they just didn't want to talk to me. But eventually they contacted me, a, a small group of ex-UVF prisoners, because they had seen a talk I had done online, actually in Australia randomly, that had been put on YouTube. And they wanted to talk to me because they felt that their perspectives weren't in there. And I did say, I can't really say that much about this experience because I can't really get access to anybody. And I did have some really quite interesting conversations with them about how they perceive their role you know, within the state and supporting the state, but also, you know, going back to what Brian has said about some ex-IRA men, actually often a lot more nuanced about what they considered, how they were used by politicians and about their relationships within the prison with Republican prisoners. You know, essentially they both seen the guards as, you know, ultimately the people they were trying to, to fight against. Um, and I just find some of their perspectives actually quite interesting. I know increasingly there's small numbers of books coming out from their perspectives, but there just isn't the same number of um, materials that we can access those stories from, even in the recent past, uh, never mind the distant past. Yeah, I suppose on one level, one of the things that would have angered a lot of Northern nationalists, certainly in the 1980s and 1990s, would have been the tendency in the South to demand that nationalists understand the unionist position and to respect the unionist position and what seemed to be this huge weight of condemnation of the IRA and very little interest in what the loyalists were doing because from the late 80s into the 90s the loyalist campaign intensifies and I think most people would argue it intensifies in part because elements within the British state were colluding with it and allowing it to kill with impunity and that therefore they would have said, you've got Ken McGuinness on the Late Late Show every week. You've got Rhonda Paisley presenting shows on RTE. It's all about understanding them. What about us? We've forgotten about us. Why don't you care about nationalists being shot every week by the UVF and the UDA? Um, so I think that there's, there is this discrepancy. And it's also, I mean, unfortunately, it becomes this grim litany of, of atrocity where 
if somebody mentions the Birmingham bombs, someone will inevitably say, well, where is your concern about the Dublin Monaghan bombs? And I think there has been a shocking lack of interest by Irish historians in particular of modern Ireland in things like Dublin Monaghan bombings. But at the same time, I think Laura is absolutely right in that um, if you are serious about a united Ireland and having discussions about you know Ireland, you have to examine what unionists think, why people cling to this belief that they're British and that this is a crucial part of their identity and that they saw both in 1920 and 1980 the IRA's campaign aimed at getting rid of them. I mean that's simply what they thought and I've done done events and, and done discussions featuring Republican and loyalist ex-prisoners and so on and again I mean you know I, I think a lot of non- participants, if that's the right word, certainly people who weren't involved in republicanism or loyalism, feel uncomfortable that often the, the ex-combatants get on so well, and they often do. I mean, they do have a commonality of experience in prison and so on, and they know each other. Um, so I know sometimes people say, well, we didn't kill anybody, and, and why are you talking to them? But I think it's important, too, to understand that there can be room for discussions between former enemies, because ultimately, I mean, I think you have to have a real debate about what you mean by a united Ireland and what you mean by republicanism and where do these people fit in I mean in 1916 Father Michael O'Flanagan the vice who becomes the vice president of Sinn Féin you know said the British are finally getting tired of, of trying to force us to love them are we going to turn around now and force Antrim and Down to love us and, and he said you know if the test of a person's nationality is to ask them and if they say they're British then we've got to you know come to terms with this. I mean, I think during the treaty debates, the private sessions, De Valera talked about giving each county a vote or not and whether to join a, a republic. I mean, I think you're, you're not going to be talking about a united Ireland in the sense that people often believed it would come about, you know, um, and they will be difficult conversations. But at the same time, the loyalists are going to have to face up to the fact that they didn't kill the IRA. They overwhelmingly killed Catholic civilians. And a great deal of that was motivated by pure sectarianism and by the belief that, you know, you kill enough Catholics and they'll give up like they did, the loyalists would have thought in 1922, you know, when they successfully secured their state. And guys, we're getting towards the end now, but there's a great quote from the United Irishmen way back in 1795, I think, when they were founded, that was often mentioned at the time of the, the bicentenary of 1798, which was also the year of the Good Friday Agreement. But the quote was, are we forever to walk like beasts of prey over fields which these ancestors stained with blood? Now, that might be a bit melodramatic, but like, are we condemned to have these debates interminably about like whether 1916 was justified, whether the war of independence could have been avoided, whose fault the civil war was, who did what in the troubles? You know, are we ever going to get past this? Uh, well, it's difficult to say because at the minute, the context is so ripe for these discussions. Centenaries traditionally are seen as big events, rather, you know, not like 70 year anniversaries or 110 year anniversaries. But also because of the, the issues around Brexit, because of the, you know, discussions around sovereignty and particularly the identity issues um, in the north then these have reactivated a lot of the insecurities on you know, all sides. And I think that means that these are big discussions because of the contemporary context and because of the, the type of anniversary that we're working with. But it doesn't mean that in 10 years time, we'll be having these discussions exactly the same again. Um, I always think back to Cormac O'Grada's work on the memory of the famine is um, kind of instructive in this. 
in that the centenary of the famine wasn't particularly well commemorated because it was a period when Ireland wasn't particularly doing that well and didn't really want to look back to a period it was doing even worse before. It became a bigger commemoration for the 150th year anniversary because it was a period when Ireland was feeling much more confident. And so often there's a, a tie in to why we commemorate things is because we feel able to commemorate them. And I think with the 100th year anniversaries, there was a feeling in 1912 and 1913 that were, you know, post-conflict Northern Ireland, we've got a kind of stabilization. We're able to have these discussions, but that quickly changed in 2016. And I think that's why these have become more and more contentious, more difficult, again, with the political landscape changing, but that isn't necessarily going to keep going. Um, the Civil War, I'm always aware, can fall off the end rather easily. I did notice quite early on that the decade of centenaries, the commemorations often dropped off in 2022 and didn't go into 23. I don't know if also we'll have commemoration fatigue by that time. I think we already had it by probably 2018. But, you know, I, it will be interesting to see. There's not an inevitability about how these discussions will go. But at the minute, they are quite heightened and they are you know, highly politicised. And I, I'm looking with interest to what happens for the next couple of years. Yeah, I suppose to try and answer it in a roundabout way. One, the, the pandemic and so on has affected the commemorations in a lot of ways. And I wonder if we were able to have big events and meetings and so on in public, would there be as much vitriol? Because it's much easier to be vitriolic when you're at a keyboard and you don't have to talk to someone face to face um, and I think that's that might be an element that stays with us I don't know I've liked a lot of the stuff that has happened during the the commemorations and I think it's been very useful again Laura has mentioned the new focus on women a lot of newer um, material about local events I think there's a problem in, in terms of stuff like Kilmichael there was a popular struggle going on there were popular mobilizations and it's a lot harder to commemorate the munitions strike or the movement against conscription, or all these events, the, the doll courts and so on, that involved thousands of people than it often is to remember an ambush. And I think then we can get into a, a kind of view that the War of Independence was led by an elite. And the IRA actually at the time was a mass movement. Um, and I suppose one difference between them and the provisionals in the 1980s was that they, the provisionals had too many weapons for the members they had, whereas the IRA in 1921 was chronically underarmed. Most IRA volunteers never never fired a shot, but they did lots of other things which were part of the story of, of the revolution that we, you know, I think we should be talking about more at least. And we, we've kind of talked about class, but probably haven't interrogated it enough. And I think that might be a difference too in how people view the North because, you know, I don't think the IRA between 1919 and 1921 was essentially a working class organization. There were working class people in it. It was, it was a movement that encompassed a broad spectrum of national society. The provosts in the North, at least, were a pretty working class organization. And I think that also accounts for some of the distaste and disdain that you see among some of the Southern establishment for them, certainly. They're not seen as people you want about the place, partly because they're from the North, partly because they're they're the wrong class. And I think that's that's a difference too that we sometimes don't notice because we assume the IRA 100 years ago must have been kind of just a movement of the poor, which you know they weren't, I don't think really. And poor people had very different attitudes to, to the national struggle uh, back then too, in, in, in some instances. But are we condemned? Um, I think there's nothing wrong with having these discussions forever if people learn from them. I think if we're condemned to shouting at each other about them, 
for the next 50 years, we're not going to get very far. And we've also got to take into account that there are large swathes of people who aren't involved in these discussions, who don't see how they're relevant to their day-to-day -day lives. And if we are going to talk about some kind of, I mean, I think the, the Brexit crisis and so on has, has produced a new situation where the United Kingdom is going to break up and we will actually be talking about some kind of Irish unity and our history is going to have to be part of that discussion. And it means nothing should be off the table. Criticise revisionists, certainly, for example, but be clear what you mean by revisionism and don't use it as an excuse to say, don't read that book, read the book, you know, find out as much as you can. Yeah, and can I say one uh, last thing about that as well, which I think is kind of important whenever, again, from the social media, um, observing, it has been really noticeable, this kind of classism as well as, you know, slightly anti-Northern kind of tinge to some of the comments that have came out you know, from the media and from politicians. And I think the class issue is really important. But I think also we need to take into account that, you know, Ireland is a more multicultural society, particularly in the South, um, in the cities, but, you know, also in the North. And this kind of sniping around identity that what is really Irish, you know, is not really Northern or can't be Protestant or can't have a tinge of loyalism to it, I think is really problematic in terms of, you know, how we also think about people who are recent migrants and whether they're here generations or not. Um, these very exclusionary ideas of Irish identity are really, you know, difficult. And I think they're really not okay to have anymore, that we need to not have these identities that are ingrained and having to have been on the old sod for thousands of years and never moved on and have these untainted lineages of connections to republicanism or not. Like a lot of the discussions I see are people who would hold quite, um, you know, pro-migrant views, but at the same time can be really exclusionary of loyalists and Protestants from Irish identity. And I just don't really understand how those two positions can be held together. But, you know, being reflexive of contemporary Ireland, that is a different country from even Ireland 20 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, is quite important in terms of negotiating those big issues of identity. Well, I think we'll leave it there. Thank you very much to Dr. Laura McAtachney and Dr. Brian Hanley. If you'd like to listen to this or any previous episodes of the show, you can go to our website, irishhistoryshow.ie. You can follow us on Twitter at Irish History Pod or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. And if you get a chance, please rate and review the show on iTunes or Spotify or whichever podcast platform you get your podcasts on. So until next time, thank you very much for listening. Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie.